Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Tug Eden, oil and gas executive and oil and gas due diligence specialist of the year. Tug specializes in evaluating oil and gas assets and investments in order to maximize their realizable value. He has deployed over $2 billion in capital in over a dozen basins across the U.S. and has drilled and completed over 1,000 wells and counting. Tug has also been profiled in NPR, whose work has been referenced in the Wall Street Journal. He serves on various boards for industry and educational institutions, including the Petroleum Advisory Board at Montana Technical University, along with being voted the Oil and Gas Due Diligence Specialist of the Year for 2020 by Corporate Vision Magazine for Excellence in A&D and M&A. Tug, welcome to the show, my man. How are you this morning? Hey, buddy. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I know, I, like I mentioned, I've been wanting to do this for a while. And so you're you're still up in Denver, is that right? I am. Yes, sir. Awesome. And so, I mean, we're recording this now. It's it's almost November. And so I would imagine the weather's changed pretty drastically since I was there. I was there only about three weeks ago, and it was 78 and absolutely beautiful is there snow on the ground for you right now or is it freezing? I mean, what does it look like? Cause it, it's probably not, the, it's not 75. I don't think. No, it's not anymore, but you missed seven to eight inches on Monday. Oh, part of me misses that. I mean, you probably remember I, I grew up in Canada and Alberta and British Columbia, and I love being down in Texas, but one thing I miss more than anything in the world is the winter sort of wonderland Christmassy holiday I'm a kid at heart when it comes to that stuff. I love the holidays and just the whole spirit behind it. And so down here, you know, right now the grass is green. People are starting to put up Christmas lights and it, it just feels unusually just, it's not the wintry spirit, I guess fall, cause it's not even winter yet, but I do miss the snow. And so I hope I'm actually coming to Denver in December. I'm hoping there's some snow on the ground so I can, you know, maybe do some snow angels or, or something like that, get some snowballs going. Cause it, I do, I miss the winter a little bit, but only for about four or five days of the year. Other than that, I don't mind. I don't miss it. Yeah. Snowbird, huh? <laughs> yeah, I am. And it's, you know, I guess I'm a chip off the old block. My parents, when they retired, they retired and, and built a home in Mexico so that they didn't have to deal with the winters. And so if, if you're Canadian, you either go to Arizona or Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, before we get going, congrats on the award for due diligence specialist of 2020. And so I'm not familiar with that. Maybe some of the listeners aren't either. Can you explain what that is? Because I think that's pretty impressive. Well, that, well, thank you. Well, I was nominated. I still don't know who did. Okay. First work I've done the last couple of years. And then, you know, they needed some other references as well. And then I was contacted more or less out of the blue and said, you know, you've been nominated for this award. One, are you willing to accept it? Well, sure. Yeah, why not? And then two, I just kind of had 
to give them some background as far as what I had done and what my background entailed. And so anyways, it, I guess it ended up working out and worked out in my favor. And well, it was just, it was just something fun. Yeah. Cool. And it's appreciative, you know, you've, you've done some work that others were apparently had utilized and had worked for them. So. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's definitely, I'm sure you were honored to, to get that. And so why is, and again, I have an idea how I would answer, but for, from your perspective, why is due diligence in oil and gas so important? And is it more important now than ever? I mean, can you kind of speak on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think it's ever, ever not been important. I think, you know, the way things are in the industry right now, there's more emphasis on it. Unfortunately, there should have been more on it over the last several years. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the position we are today. So in all, though, it's, you know, there should have been more due diligence. The asset level should have been more due diligence at the company level, both private and public. And it would have served, it would have served the industry well. You know, it would have been some tough medicine, not as harsh as what's going on right now, that's for sure. Right. And because when I think due diligence and I come from an operations and technical background, I think technical due diligence, but from what you're talking about is is more, I would say, on like sort of the, the the financial and capital and, you know, just business oriented due diligence, which I would agree. I, I think there's, you know, we've been hit with reality a lot faster now, especially since this whole quarantine and, and pandemic has happened. But yeah, I think that brings a whole new meaning to ha- doing your due diligence. And hopefully people have either learned or are going through the, the tough lessons to make sure that we somehow climb our way out of this thing, which we'll touch on a little bit later. But I just wanted to kind of highlight that. And, and again, congratulations on that. I think that's especially now that's super impressive. So, but before we get going on your personal background, I want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, who is Technip FMC. So Technip's Energy's business sees a very promising area for energy transition in the carbon-free energy solutions that replace conventional processes that produce CO2. In this field, Technip FMC is expanding their portfolio of technologies and processes to carbon-free energy chains such as green hydrogen produced from renewable energy. If you'd like to learn more, click the link in the show notes, and I'd be happy to point you in the right direction if you want to learn more. And something else I wanted to highlight too, is we recently had a review on oil and gas industry leaders podcast that I wanted to share. And it was by podcasting Mike, not sure who that is, but a big shout out to podcasting Mike for supporting OGGN. He says, Paige, your interview with Barry Glickman was fantastic. I had no idea that Technip FMC was so involved with reducing greenhouse gas emissions and carbon intensity. Great to hear. Shout out to Amazon Web Services for being bold enough to sponsor your show. You have a big fan club here. Keep up the awesome work. Well, again, thanks for all the listeners and the support. All everyone who leaves a review, it's greatly appreciated. And this is just another great reason why we do what we do. Creating awareness around very important initiatives. Well done to Technip FMC's whole organization. All right, back to you, Tug. So it feels like we met forever ago, and it was actually when I moved to Denver as a young chicken account manager in the drilling fluids world, but that was back in 2010, and a, a lot has changed since then, especially for you, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the last made a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got to say, and again, I'm not trying to blow smoke here, but you're probably one of the, my favorite drilling engineers that I've worked with in my career. So again, my hat's off to you. And you set the bar high, you know, when, when we were working with you in, in the DJ basin, and, and you were just great to get along with. You obviously had high expectations on the performance and service perspective, but you were fair, 
and it was more, I felt like a partnership. And so again, that's, you've done well and, and obviously you're doing some great things, but before we go on, on the career stuff, where are you from originally? Because I, I think I have an idea from back then when you told me, but again, if you wouldn't mind share where you're from and kind of, we'll go from there. Yeah. So going back to the very beginning of the story, I'm actually originally from a town called Big Piney, Wyoming. It's about an hour, hour and a half south of, of Jackson Hole. Originally, it's an oil and gas town. And for me, I'm actually third generation oil and gas. So having followed my dad, my uncles, and my grandfather through the business. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, people of a certain age. At one time, I think everybody had to make a rotation through Big Piney or Western Wyoming of some sorts. It's not quite the same anymore. But yeah, that area, you know, I think people are familiar with Jonah. So Jonah, that was that was actually more of a newer field for Big Piney. But, you know, prior to that, there was a lot more. A lot more to it out west of town. So there was, you had your, of course, gas. It was a gas condensate field. We also had oil, you know, kind of the thicker high pour point stuff as well. Plus, you know, that Exxon field out west of town is the highest producing helium reservoir in the world. Oh. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Is it still, I mean, are they, is it still pretty active? Because, I mean, helium is obviously important. I mean, there's a, it's, it's, it has a pretty, it's got a pretty wide use, doesn't it? Through with helium does, yeah, more for medical purposes than anything else. I think if you think of helium, everybody wants to fill a bunch of balloons. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's kind of a small part of it. Yeah, it's, I think the majority of it's for medical and physics laboratory experience, I believe. But yeah, I mean that stuff up there—it's Exxon drilled the wells in the late '70s, early '80s. There's only a handful of them. I want to say there's maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 wells total, but. And out of that whole stream, it's, you know, it's virtually sour, 75 to 80% sour, but you're getting a fraction of percent off that stream. That's, that's helium. And it pays, it pays the bills plus some. No kidding. So, I mean, so growing up there, did you enjoy growing up there? I mean, you're, is that relatively close to the mountains? Yeah, you are. It's, it's actually in the valley. So to the West, you have the Wyoming range, to the East, you have the Wind River range. So you drive half an hour, any direction you're in, whichever set of Wyoming ranges you want to be in or mountain ranges sorry but you know the caveat to that is big piney is one of the coldest places in the lower 48 it, just being i guess where it is it's a heat sink so it's it's not uncommon to see 40 below or more during a winter and it you know you're running methanol almost year round i can remember fourth of july standing in snow holy smokes i had no idea yeah you know by august you're starting to get frost so the summer season lasts you know, a good three days. <laughs> it's back yeah. to winter. Man, no kidding. And I would, you know, when you're saying it's the coldest place in the lower 48, I was going to say, I'm sure folks in North Dakota would beg to differ, but it sounds like that's the truth. And so, I mean, what was it like growing up there? I mean, obviously kind of being in the valley close to the mountains, I would imagine everything, everybody's pretty outdoorsy. And I mean, if I, if I remember correctly, you're a, you're a big skier, right? Or snowboarder. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you know, there's a local place we used to go to. There's Jackson Hole that we used to go to. But I, I think, you know, as the nature of a stance, you, you do have to be an outdoors type person. Otherwise, you go crazy if you're trying to stay inside. You know, my hometown's only 1,200 people. Okay. And I think our whole county only has 3,000, 3,500, something like that. So, and just kind of, I mean, that fits well with, you know, the mystique of Wyoming. Wyoming's only got 600,000 people in general anyway. So anyways, you have to, you know, you have to be self-reliant. You have to be out outdoorsy. So, and it's not just the skiing and snowboarding, but people are you know, heavily into the 
fishing and hunting and camping and hiking. And, you know, during the winter, it's snowmobiling is is a hot topic. Oh, I miss that. So, huh. so Denver then is naturally a good fit for you. It is. It is much like yourself. I I've I spent my fair share of time in Texas, and I remember one winter distinctly. It was eighty eight degrees, and it was Christmas Eve. I was like, nope, I've I've had enough. I've had enough. <laughs> Man, I've been here for probably shoot now seven, eight years, and it's still yeah. It doesn't. It's hard to get over that that part. But my wife and I keep teasing ourselves about going back to British Columbia for Christmas and New Year's, and obviously this year, you know, that makes it challenging. But we've got a two year old, and a, and she's now five, so we're hoping if things get somewhat back to normal or whatever that looks like next year, getting to have a Christmas or a wintry Christmas holiday would be something we we really want to we really want to experience especially for the kids i mean that's that's what it's all about is making sure they get exposed to some of the the finer things of life you know well, such sure, as snow man. on christmas <laughs> <laughs> yeah how many kids do you have now so we have two yeah, really? yeah yeah it's been nothing but pure entertainment for the last five years which i'm sure you're well aware of because i know you have at least two right how many do you have actually we have three now so okay yeah, which you probably remember and then we have a third one yeah and he came along in march wow okay so there's definitely so what's the age gap it's our oldest is 11 and the middle one is seven and then we have the second family come along it's seven months wow yeah so i mean i'm curious as anybody so how is the age gap and how is it being a parent now you know at this age versus back then when you started i mean touch on that because i mean we have a lot of folks that listen that are fathers, mothers, you know, probably going through some similar stuff. So I'm curious, how, how's that been for you? You know what? It is much different having kids in your 20s than in your 40s. No kidding. Wife will tell you that for hands down. Yeah, it's, I remember you, you could, you could have a kid, you'd raise a kid, you're not sleeping anyway, but you can jump out of bed, go work out before work, go to work and you'd be fine. And now it's just, it's like taking a hammer to the temple each evening. <laughs> you're, you're not out of it. <laughs> wow. So just the amount of energy that you have to give, I'm sure is, is a little bit less. And so I, I would assume you have to be a little more strategic on how you manage your time. And, and I, I would imagine structure and a schedule is extremely important. Oh, very much so. And it, as you probably know, for people who are trying to work and go to school at the same time and have a family, I didn't have to do that. When I got my MBA, I just had my oldest son at the time. And then shortly after getting it is when we had our, our second. But if I had to have, you know, two or three kids and then, you know, try to hold a job and then also, you know, that evening go to go to school for an hour or two or however long, that would have been extremely tough. And it, I didn't have to do that, thankfully, but there was others in there. My hats are off to them. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. I owe my wife a huge vacation when I'm done with school next December because she has been about her doubled her workload and I feel guilty, but this is a benefit to all of us. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging, but I guess, so for you, knowing what you know now and have gone through two kids that are you know quite a bit older, what would the current tug tell the 20 year old tug as a first time parent? No, oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Not worry about anything. I think Especially, you know, everybody has your first kid and you treat them like they're something fragile. Yeah. And kids are the most robust things in the world. And <laughs> you can watch them. They run across the floor, they'll trip, they'll slam their face in the concrete, hop back up and go. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that type of stuff that 
you watch it, it gives you a headache, but it doesn't bother them at all. And so I, that's the biggest thing is just, you know, don't worry about it. Everything's, everything's going to work out. They're, you know, they're built to be strong when they're, when they're right. that little. Isn't that true? Yeah. That's funny. From our first to our second, it's, it's very, I can identify with you there because some of the things that we let our son do and more so just, you know, whether it's on the stairs or, you know, wanting to jump off of things, granted, you know, it's a boy. So naturally I'm a little bit tougher on him, but yeah, some of the things that he does and gets away with my daughter would have never. And, you know, even just things like what he eats at his age compared to what she ate, you know, I don't think she had anything with sugar in it probably till the time she was two. And of course now she's five. So she likes, you know, the, you know, the, the treats and, you know, snacks every once in a while. And so, you know, what does she do? She shoves candy in his face and she gets a little treat and he's, you know, so he's ripping around at one and a half, two years old, buzzing off his sugar, which would have given my wife and I a heart attack with our daughter at that age. But it's just, yeah, you kind of got to let your hair down and just roll with the punches, (laughs) the more kids you have. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting to touch on. Speaking of family, you mentioned, you know, you're, you said third generation oil and gas. So growing up, I mean, was it something that you looked at and kind of were positively influenced into that industry? I mean, did you look at them as mentors? Because a lot of people that if you have family in oil and gas, you either love it and you want to get into it, or you say, absolutely not. I hate it. I don't want anything to do with oil and gas, which obviously it's, you know, it wasn't like that for you, but was it them that really influenced you to, to get into oil and gas or was it like a forced thing or, or how did that work out? It was more than, more than the influence, certainly. So, you know, growing up, really my earliest memories, and this is going to sound odd, but my earliest memories are going with my father to well sites. So, you know, at the time, he was a pumper for the Natural Gas Corporation of, of California, or, or NGC, but they had a field around my hometown. And my dad, you know, it's, you could take your kids with you to work. So I had my car seat, we strapped it in his truck, and, you know, we'd run his route every day. And he was also watching compressor station. So it's, I have vivid memories, you know, of being that young. And, you know, we're hopping through, through and around the separators and and D highs and then you know what I remember having struggling to get over the, the load line on a compressor station and he haven't helped me out with that. And then from there you just you kind of gets in your blood. It's you know I was I was lucky enough to I call it a classical education at that age where you learn kind of the fundamentals, you learn the mechanics and by the time I was you know 10 or 11 I had a pretty good idea of of what went on in the industry and then it just kind of built from there. But my grandfather actually immigrated from Minnesota. Okay. So he was in the lumberjack business, basically a lumberjack. And then the boom hit in Western Wyoming in late 40s, early 50s. And he jumped, went from lumber into oil and gas. And then from there, just, you know, he started his own business in the 70s. And then, you know, worked with my dad and my uncles. My dad later on took the pumper out. And then, we actually migrated back to the family business in the eighties. And then from there is, you know, it's kind of where I had picked up. And so I worked in the family business, you know, with my dad early on, of course. And then later on, you know, we did a lot of facilities work, production work. And then it was more on the service side. So also learn, you know, you learn how to use heavy equipment and tally, load casing, unload casing, tubing, kind of did it all. No kidding. So you obviously have a lot of memories growing up, you know, with your old man ripping around site to site, but is there anything that really sticks out that was like either a pivotal moment or, or one thing that 
kind of resonated with you for your entire life? Because I, I feel like as a child getting exposed to those kind of things, there's there's those, those odd memories that feel like they were yesterday that really kind of helped put a building block into whether it was your character, your work ethic, your goals. I mean, does anything really stand out from, from doing that growing up? Yeah, I mean, a few things too. I remember, well, we're going to work, I'll work backward on you. Okay. So I remember, you know, my grandfather, I was working with my grandfather. My grandfather to this day still works six days a week. You know, he's that type, you know, he's from that generation and had to grow up in the Great Depression and he had World War II. And, and anyways, he's just, I like, he's a great guy. But anyways, so I remember in high school having to work with my grandfather. Could never outwork the guy. And if you're, you're 17 or 18 and this guy, you know, he's in his, you know, his 50s, 60s. His, you could just never... You could never outwork him. And I I don't know. For all I know, he went home that night and you know, took a bottle of aspirin and went to sleep. But he wasn't about to let you outwork him, huh? <laughs> exactly. But some memories that do stick out is I, I kind of told you about, you know, really early in my childhood, my earliest memories. There was an instance as well where there was a local operator had just cemented a well. They were they were moving the rig. And anyway, so well started to flow. And they had BOPs off the well, and you're gonna and you can imagine fairly quickly there it's blowing out. Well, anyways, two rig hands and my dad volunteered to bolt on a new set of BOPs. Well, they didn't have a set of gloves or a slicker suit or anything. And meanwhile, it's you know it's a gas condensate well, and it's all the cement's unloaded. So you got you know the location is more or less you got this hot cement. And you're going to get condensate sitting on top. So you're in a puddle of, of gasoline, more or less. But my father and these two guys are down there, you know, bolting on this, this set of BOPs. My dad's sugar suit didn't come all the way to his wrist. And his gloves weren't long enough to cover that gap. So he has about an inch wide gap around his wrist that were chemically burned from the cement. And he was the luckiest one. I think the other two guys, one, his suit kind of turned into a midriff and he was laying on his back pulling the wrench and he got burned across his abdomen. Another guy got in his eye and the other two that, you know, they spent some time in the hospital. My dad just got wrapped up, but something like that, it, it kind of, you know, it, it brings it home. And it's, you know, I, I think everybody has kind of this romantic notion about oil and gas, but at the same time, there's, there is that dark side and that's not really dark. It's that side you have to respect. Yeah, no, most definitely. Huh. And a lot's changed since then, but, but that sort of, I think that mentality and that work ethic and that, you know, by any means necessary, get it done attitude is, is why oil and gas people within oil and gas are, are so resilient. And I feel like, you know, I'm probably biased saying this, but some of the hardest working folks that'll do whatever it takes to, you know, get, get oil out of the ground. I mean, oh, it's, sure. it's fascinating to see. And it's crazy because, you know, our industry is, is changing and it's evolving just like everything else in life. It, it, it continues to evolve and, you know, new generations come up with new ideas and different ways of doing things, which is why I want to shift gears now to talking more about, you know, our current environment and in oil and gas. And so to kind of switch, you know, switch gears in your mind there. So obviously, you know, since 2000, you know, 15, 16, things have been up and down. 2020 comes completely demolishes the demand for oil. Oil and gas companies were already in a, you know, crisis of balance sheets, if you will. So speaking more current events, we're going through this 
I call it Corona economy. Everyone's aware of it. So I'm not going to go down the path of, of what it is and why it's affected oil and gas, but how is oil and gas in your, from your perspective and, and thoughts on it going to fundamentally change due to COVID? And do you think that demand patterns are going to forever change or do you think they're going to get back? A lot to unpack there, but I mean, we can just start with whatever you think and go from there. I see demand coming back and it's obviously going to drive supply for the next couple of years. It's not going to be the other way around. And it's, I think COVID, you know, COVID's going to run itself out. Things will normalize. I can't tell you how long it's going to be. It could be, you know, eight months, could be 12, could be two years, but it'll return. I think at that point, oil and gas will have at this point, hopefully, rectified the past such that they're no longer, you know, out drilling themselves. Everybody's, as you said, they're going to have cleaner balance sheets and they're just going to watch their CapEx. I hope that's the case. I can't say that for sure. It seems like every generation for, you know, forgets the memories the last and we just repeat and repeat and repeat. <laughs> yeah. So it's, and it, I think if you can guarantee one thing, it's that the memories or at least the lessons from this downturn, they're going to be forgotten and give it 15, 20 years. So, and this something like this extends, you can go all the way back to the 1860s, 1870s. So John Rockefeller, when he started Standard, and well, he was he was already a commodity trader. And then in the 1860s, when Standard really, you know, started getting its leg underneath, or legs underneath it. But anyways, Rock, for Rockefeller, he looked at what was going on in Pennsylvania in the 1860s, 1870s, and you'd have wild swings. It's, I mean, you're, the oil would go from cents a barrel to over 100. And this is just a matter of days. Rockefeller says, there's no way I'm getting involved in that. It's just, it's too wild. And he figured out, you know what, if, if you want to, if you want to get in the oil industry, you got to be on the transportation side. So he figured out initially, hey, if everybody's got a funnel to a central source being a refinery, well, that's, that's where I want to be. So I'll be the refinery. And shortly thereafter, you know, he jumped into transportation. So, you know, I think he started out initially on, you know, on wagons with Teamsters hauling barrels of oil to refinery, later jumped to pipelines. And that way, you know, all the volatility from the upstream side, he didn't have to worry about. You know, he was kind of in that central location where everybody would have to come to him or the other refiners, and he was able to control that. So, and it wasn't until the 1880s that, Rockefeller branched into the upstream side, which is another lesson you hear over and over and over again is you're running out of oil, we're running out of oil, we're running out of oil. Well, he was afraid, okay, if we run out of oil, you know, what do I do or where do I go, you know, to keep his business sustained? So I want to say he, I think his first foray in the upstream side was near Lima, Ohio in the 1880s. So anyways, you know, he had a good 20 years really trying to you know, keep the command of the, of the industry. And it was 20 years later when you started to see a lot of producers go away, the oil, oil supply was going down. And at that point is when he got to the upstream side. So whether there's, you know, applicable lessons to that or something to emulate, I don't know. But the two biggest takeaways is one, for everybody's fear, every generation of running out of oil hasn't come true in the last, you know, 110, 30, 150 years, whatever it's been. And then secondarily, you're always going to have this volatility upstream side, and you're always going to have these situations of oversupply. So it's 1860s, 1870s, you know, the 
19-teens, the 1930s, the 1950s, you know, 1970s and 80s, and then, you know, of course, right now. And right now is, is probably more, more analogous to what was going on in the 1970s and 80s. Sure. And you're right. I mean, the topic of peak oil has been, like you said, it's, it's, it's happened multiple times. Whereas I think, and I'm sure back then people said the same thing, this one might be different in, in the sense that, you know, there's so much push and wherever people stand on either side, but to go, you know, to net zero and, you know, we're pushing, you know, clean energy, which, you know, there, there's certainly some benefits there from an environmental perspective, not to get into that, but, you know, it just feels like there's a lot of resistance against oil and gas for whatever reasons, again, but do you think that for the US, we'll see 13 million a day again, anytime soon? I mean, it's hard to think that if, you know, right now, I don't know, I think we're like maybe eight or nine around there. There's obviously not enough rigs to sustain this amount of production. You know, there's talk about things roaring back, but what happens when, you know, we get, you know, everyone draws down their inventories, demand comes back up, then all of a sudden, you know, unconventional says, let's rock and roll. What's to say that, you know, OPEC and, and you know, Russia and the rest of the world doesn't flood the market with, you know, cheap oil. Are we at a disadvantage right now for U.S. unconventionals? Or where do you think we stand in, in the cycle of, of that? And, and are we going to get back to 13 million, you think? I hope not. You know, we're certainly capable of doing it. It's always going to be there if we want to we'll be able to do it. But I think we need to find ourselves as some kind of equilibrium. Geopolitically, OPEC, you know, OPEC tried to flood the market in 14 and 15, and it didn't work. And if they knew what we know now, OPEC could have just sat back and they knew, you know, the U.S. oil and gas space would have burned itself out. And they really wouldn't have needed to do much of anything. So what was interesting, though, is you saw within OPEC, it really stressed nearly all the members. And you had, you know what, they all cheat. But to keep a veneer of authenticity to the cartel, you have, you know, mostly the throttle is coming out of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, what if you have a couple members, you know, Iraq was one, Nigeria was another, where they were overproducing their quotas. Well, Saudi Arabia would reduce their, their volume just so you can show on, on the top that, hey, we're cutting our volumes as we said we would. But behind the scenes, you know, it was, it was fractured and it was stressed. So it's simultaneously, I, I think what oil has transitioned from is a commodity and it's turned into kind of a geopolitical force now for the United States that, you know, we don't have this dependency on foreign oil anymore. There's enough domestic supply. And it's I'm saying that as well, knowing that we don't have the refinery capacity. You know, capacity we do, but it's, it's we have, we're producing the wrong type of oil now for what we're our refineries are designed to take. But I mean, the point, the point is still there that it's stressed, it's stressed OPEC, you know, stressing Russia, this OPEC plus where it was OPEC and Russia and a couple others, you know, it's been done historically, not just recently. And inevitably, you know, Russia usually cheats the system and takes advantage of it. But I, I think if you're, if you're OPEC, especially Saudi Arabia, you know, a bad partner is better than no partner at all when you're going against, you know, 13 million barrels a day or, or 12 coming out of the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And, and for us here in the United States, I would say that most investors are still 
lacking a lot of confidence in our space that may come back, but you know, I'm, I'm sure they're waiting to see if, if, if we have the capital discipline to be able to give returns back to investors, but it seems like, and again, I'm, I'm not a business analyst by any means necessary, but you know, companies spending large percentages or over percentage of their free cash flow to grow volumes at the expense of shareholder returns is obviously unacceptable. How do we maintain a certain level of production without spending tons and tons and tons of cash? And I mean, are we seeing that now through these consolidations? I mean, can you touch a little bit on, on from like the, from the financial perspective, like how we maintain a certain level of production without bleeding so bad? Cause it, it feels like that kind of, you know, that obviously had happened. And so how do we avoid that from happening in the future? Assuming commodity prices don't get above 50, 55 or for the foreseeable future. I think. It's going to, what it's going to take is for supply to match what the market is willing to pay for. So if you're looking for an analogous period in history that would match, or at least closely match this, it would probably be the 1980s. So what you're going to see is, one, capital is, is not going to be there. And what you're going to rely on is if you're an oil and gas company, you have to use your internal cash flow to fund all your projects, which is how it should have been in the first place. And that's how you return cash to shareholders. Unfortunately, that got way out of balance. You know, that was cheap, you had plenty of private equity capital available just because you couldn't get a return anywhere else. So money was flowing to private equity. But in any case, I think what you're going to see over the next few years, one is companies are going to start to use internal cash flow, which is going to slow down their spend. So you'll see U.S. supply go down, I think. And from that, the prices will go back up. Secondarily, I think you're going to see a wave of consolidations. You've already, you know, some of it's already occurred this year. And that goes back to the 1980s as well. One of the things I, I try to challenge people about is, okay, it's, if you're born in the 80s, it might be tough, especially if you're born in the 90s. But if you go back and look, how many of the companies that currently exist exist in the 80s? And you know, people usually draw a blank. Well, it's actually not very many. Secondarily, if you look at independents who exist in the 80s versus those who exist in the 90s, I mean, the 80s was a slaughter for independents. You know, prices were so low. It, Matter of fact, it got so bad that you had Boone Pickens Mesa. So Mesa was actually a small player in the oil and gas space, but they made runs at some giants. So they made runs at Gulf Oil and Conoco. I think people have forgot about that. Both were unsuccessful. Gulf, Gulf eventually got into a bidding war, and Chevron won that and walked away. And at the same time, Conoco more or less just paid Mesa's ransom and, and Mesa went away with the understanding that, you know, Mesa would leave them alone. So we did have some of the corporate raider type stuff going on in the eighties, but in any case, a lot of the independents, which entered the eighties did not exit the eighties. And I think you'll see something similar going on now, you know, especially this year, you know, you got Noble, it's being acquired by, by Chevron after unsuccessfully, after they unsuccessfully went after Anadarko. I think Chevron is probably, probably breathing more easy with Noble than they were with Anadarko, but I would argue Anadarko was probably a better fit for them. You know, their debt load aside. And then you got WPX and, and Devon. And I'm a fan of the merger of equals as well. So here in the DJ, you know, there, a couple of years ago was PDC and, and Synergy made great sense. Virtually all you do is, you know, there's not much premium to it. You just, you're saying, hey, we're just going to merge. We're going to call it. Call it equal amongst each other. But what you do is you offload 
one set of executives and you know a large part of the GNA, you combine into one company, and that's where your synergies come from. So it, it worked out great. And I would like to see more of those. And that, you know, PDC and Synergy was was put together by by Kimmeridge. So, you know, I'll give Kimmeridge kudos for that. But and secondarily, the other thing that's going on right now is is bankruptcies. But what what bothers me about bankruptcies, and I think people miss this point, is it doesn't fix what drove the company into bankruptcy in the first place. It cleans up their balance sheet. Right. What drives a company into bankruptcy? One, it's either outrunning your your cash flow, or two, technically not doing that well. Well, bankruptcy doesn't fix either of those. And what you've seen lately is the same management teams that entered bankruptcy are exiting with the company. So there's really not much of a change to bankruptcy. It's just making kind of the sick companies more healthy and you know they'll accomplish virtually nothing going over the next several years. So I, I don't know, but and kind of answer your, your more latter question as well. So with the mergers or, or buyouts, what that's what that's going to do, you know, it takes that the company that's being bought out, it puts their reserves in inventory. So they aren't going to be actively drilled and produced. They're going to sit in the ground for however long, and maybe eventually they'll get to being produced, and maybe they won't. But in any case, you know, reserves in the ground are, are going to make the industry much more healthy right now mm-hmm. than being. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And one that you didn't touch on, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on the Conoco Concho deal. Is, is that a pretty, you know, from your perspective, a, a pretty solid move for Conoco? You know, I, I think so. It's Concho. Concho was healthy. They got a good balance sheet. I think they'll fit Conoco just fine. And that gives Conoco a position to be, you know, more or less some of the tier one acreage across several, several different plays. So it helps also diversify Conoco a little bit more. I think people forget a few years ago, Conoco wasn't doing that well. They had some internal stuff going on. They were part of the, the Luke Oil Partnership, and that was later dissolved. So and, and Conoco's really, I would say over the last really 10 years, has done a, a good job of making itself more healthy. You know, another one too, and I, I get asked about this all the time, is EOG. So a couple a couple of weeks ago, there was an article about EOG was, was being actively pursued by someone who never never said who, but UOG, that's different. It would be a buyout unlike anything that's happened so far. So UOG is financially healthy enough that it doesn't have to sell itself and it doesn't have to merge. You know what, if UOG wanted, they could continue on. Probably, I think they could exist for a long time on their own. They'd probably continue to do well and get larger. But in UOG's case, if, if you're someone who's actively wanting to look at a good, healthy company and acquire tier one assets across several plays, EOG in and of itself isn't going to accept an all stock deal with no cash and no premium. It's, it's just not going to happen. For a lot of these other companies, you know, you're doing them a favor by buying them out. For EOG, you have to convince them that being bought is going to be better than being a going concern. Sure. Off the top of your head, what do you think their enterprise value is for, for someone like EOG? I haven't looked at their market value in a long time. I know they're only four to five billion in debt. So it's you know, not much, not much more than their market value. But you know the thing, the thing about them though is if you go to EOG, EOG's healthy enough that they could demand, you know, a 20 to 30 percent premium. Now on top of that, you know, it's a significant amount of cash. I don't see them getting complete, you know, cash buyout. There'd have to be some stock involved, but there would need to be some significant amount of cash involved. Well, what that means, you tack on the premium, you tack on the, on the cash, 
Well, it's going to require you know, acquiring company one to have the balance sheet to, to withstand something like that, enough cash on hand, or enough capacity to take on the debt to fund the, the buyout. So it's not like it's going to be any other or any just general company. It's going to, have to be someone fairly large and healthy. Exxon keeps being brought up, but I, I don't know if Exxon wants to undertake something like that at the moment. You know, they they're still trying to keep their head above water. You know, is Chevron Chevron's I don't think in any position anymore to to do anything like that. For a number of years, Shell was always rumored. I don't know. Shell and a lot of European companies are having to contend with zero emissions and at least net zero goals right now in the EU. And so that, you know, in oil and gas acquisition makes that harder. Yep. Early Most oil gas maybe, but oil is harder. Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that. I was going to bring that up, but, but you had got in front of me on that one. But I was with some folks yesterday and we were talking about the, you know, the consolidation and I had brought up EOG and said, yeah, you know, there's, I keep just, there's just conversations being had about the possibility of that happening. And it's an interesting one and, and time will tell. But speaking of, you know, European companies, you have BP, Shell, you know, big ones that are, you know, into the energy transition, Equinor, obviously big one. What are your thoughts on someone like BP, you know, telling the public, we're going to reduce production, we're going to go, you know, start really transitioning into renewables. What's the, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, is it a good strategy? Are they, are they just jumping on the, you know, the Paris Accord to make the West of the world happy? Or it's tough to really say, at least from my seat, like, is that the best, I mean, are, are you looking, is that the best decision for shareholders? Is that the best decision for us as a, you know, globe to help provide, you know, a good world for the next, you know, few generations to come into, or, I mean, what's your stance on that or thoughts? Yeah. A lot of it for me is skepticism. I see stuff like that and it's, and you see posturing and in BP's case, it would mean something if BP had the credibility to pull that through. So what happened 1999, 2000 BP tried to be on petroleum campaign. They tried to rebrand as no longer British petroleum, but beyond petroleum, and they tried to get into the renewable space, and they were somewhat aggressive about it. And it worked until 2010. And that's when you had the Deepwater Horizon incident, and everything went up in smoke, literally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at that point, you know, if you're BP, you know, all your credibility gets flushed. And people, you know what, people are looking at and going, you know what, it's, you really weren't doing what you said you were wanting to do. And one, you can't even fulfill your obligations as an oil and gas company. And it, it crushed them. And BP is still not exactly the best company they were even 10 years ago or near the same company. But, you know, others, Shell, Total, I think they can make the overtures for it. It's just not as easy as they make it out to be or what they assume it'll be. And secondarily, and somewhat to your question as well, if you're an oil and gas company, and your shareholders are funding you to find oil and gas. And they aren't funding you to go build windmills or solar plants anywhere. Then you know, stick to what you do best. And that's what's going to provide the most return for your shareholders. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great, great answer. And it's it's simple, but it's the truth. And I want to switch gears again here. You know, you, you mentioned, I think, before we started recording about what you're currently doing with Petrotech. So I'd love for you to, to tell me about that. You mentioned carbon sequestration. So yeah, tell me more about what you're doing there and sort of what the future looks like for that. 
Yeah, so here the last several months have been helping Petrotech Engineering with, they do a wide variety of, of stuff and across a wide variety of industries. But one of the things I'm helping them out with is carbon sequestration and storage and trying to value those projects and help different firms kind of figure out you know, if it makes sense for them, especially here in the U.S. where you can get tax credits for that. So it's been kind of a nascent niche and it's starting to gain a little bit of steam, but it's, it's certainly new. And it's kind of with the wild, wild west at the moment in some regards. It's applicable for some, it's not for others, but it's like everything else. You know, if it makes financial sense, go for it. Otherwise, you know, don't pursue it. Otherwise, you just, you know, you burn capital that didn't need to be burned. Mm. Do you think there's going to be more and more push towards that? I mean, obviously, with all these goals that folks are, you know, putting out there, is that a good place to, whether, you know, it's, it's private equity or people to look at investing or is it still not very proven or, or where are we at? If you were to put it in, you know, baseball terms, what inning are we in with, you know, carbon sequestration? We aren't even on first base, so we're still <laughs> at back. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's still so new and that I think companies are still trying to figure out. And, and for oil and gas players, especially it's something that it, you don't even have to transition into but it's something that you could couple onto your existing business. So well, Oxy has, has made a big push about their being able to sequester and, and store CO2 in an, in an EOR setting. For others, it's, you know, if, if you're a power plant or a refinery or an ethanol plant, you don't even need to sell for EOR. But if you can inject the CO2 into the ground and store it safely, you can get the tax credits for that. So it's got a wide applicability across a number of industries. But for oil and gas, it's not requiring you to put a bunch of money into windmills or solar panels or solar plants. It's just something that, you know, it fits you already where you can drill an injection well or two yeah. and you know, sequester the, whatever carbon you can find or CO2 and, and store the ground and get a tax right off of that. Right. It's an interesting topic. And again, something that's, you know, conversations that I've had within, you know, my classes here at University of Colorado, but it's interesting and, and hopefully there is a future for it. You know, again, depending on your stance on climate change, it's definitely, you know, some interesting technology and, and what we can do with it and the ability to, you know, for companies to essentially make money doing it without, like you said, diving into an industry on the renewable side that you're not quite familiar with. It's, it's a more natural transition, just from my opinion, but, you know, it's interesting stuff. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you're learning stuff every day. I mean, cause that's, that's a lot different than drilling wells, I would imagine. <laughs> in some regards, it is. In others, it isn't. You, you still have to put wells in the ground and you still have to do a lot of reservoir engineering with it. That's true, yeah. But you know, the thing about CCS, too, is it doesn't require you to destroy part of your economy in order to, to rebuild another part. You can just tack it on. So it's you see this virtual this fight between you know, the renewable crowd and then oil and gas and and it's, but with CCS, it applies to both and you're not having this continual tug of war and the zero sum game between you know, renewables and, and the oil and gas is something that we can use for, for both. And, you know, the tax credits will, will certainly help you out. And so there's optionality for, for oil and gas such that you know, if you capture some of that CO2 and in, in, in a CO, you know, it's going to help you out at least while oil prices are down at least from a tax credit sense. So you still have to be a viable business if you're paying taxes, but the tax credits will help you out, certainly. 
No kidding. And, and for the folks out there, it's if you're not familiar with it, Google it. I think there's a lot of R&D and a lot of research being put in and, and companies like Technip FMC and a lot of these big engineering companies are, are really putting some efforts towards it. It's some pretty interesting stuff. And so I think over the years, we're going to see a lot more of it. So, well, with that being said, Tug, before we close out, I always like to close out with a couple of questions that are more on the, the personal side, but not too invasive. But what's something about you that not many people know about? I mean, maybe the guys have worked with you or folks that have worked with you, you know, maybe not knowing whether it's a unique hobby or, you know, just a unique interest, something about yourself that most folks don't know about. Is there anything that comes to mind that's unique? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'd have, yeah, I'd have to think about that a little bit. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Do you have any odd hobbies or any, you know, things that you and the family like to do that's maybe kind of unique or fun or, or a tradition that you that you do with the family? We're big in the outdoors. So everybody, you know, skis, fishes, hunts, camps, whatever. Sorry, just I can't uh, can't really come up with much. Hey, you know what? You're not the only one. It's a curveball. I know it. And so sometimes I've had folks be like, you know what? I like going outside at nighttime and staring at the stars and other people, I mean, I never know what kind of answer I get. So I always like to throw it out there. But hey, I mean, hunting, fishing, you know, I know you're a big skier and snowboarder. And so, I mean, that's that's good enough for me. I guess one last question I do have is, you know, for the folks out there that oh, they're reading headlines, it's a bunch of fear and hate. And, you know, with regards to oil and gas, is there a positive message that you'd like to relay to give folks a little bit of optimism and a little bit of, I mean, I know hope is not a plan, but but having someone like yourself who's been in the industry for a long time, you have a solid understanding of what we're going through. I mean, what, what kind of, is there hope and is there anything to look forward to here, you know, within the next few years for oil and gas? Yeah, it always comes around. I don't know. People have a split personality about oil and gas. So when things are booming, you feel like the boom's going to go on forever. <laughs> yeah. We go, when things are in the tank like they are right now, you feel like it's this is how it's going to be forever. It's a cyclical industry. It's going to come back. It will continue to, you know, ride its ups and downs. And I would just say, you know what, hang on. And it's, it's certainly a good time to improve or expand your skill set. So I, I know you're going to UC Denver, but I, I talked to, actually, I talked to a lot of more younger engineers and graduates. And I tried to tell them, you know, if you were going to branch out with a different skill set, now is the time. So if you're looking, you know, if you're looking for something, it's, it's not going to hurt to try to get more on the financial side, learn more about the financial side of business. You know, one of the other things too is, is data analysis right now. And a third is, is coding. The data analysis you've got to be careful with because I think people have put that on such a high standard now. And I, I still don't trust a lot of it. And it's, I still like to do my own analysis and it's, it's done me well. And then a coding, of course, if you can write programs to make yourself more efficient, which, you know, makes you do your job more efficient, which brings more more upside to your employer, that just makes you more valuable. So, and then, you know, of course, being able to look at the financial side, which is, is something that I try to do more often, you know, it, it at least gives you a better perspective of why the industry is the way it is, why the players are the way they are. And, you know, it just, it helps you to laugh sometimes at some of the weird quirks that, that go on in the industry. And it's, I like to talk about, you know, every, People have forgot about Arm and Hammer and Oxy and, you know, for, for Hammer, for the longest time, he wanted to be a member of the S&P 500. And he found that the best way to do it for him was to buy a slaughterhouse in the Chicago area. It gave him just enough that, you know, it worked. It's something that 
you were just talking about, where you branch into areas that really don't make any sense for an oil and gas company, but he did it anyway. And his show, his shareholders weren't exactly happy about it. <laughs> I can um, imagine. And you know, another one here, and here's one in reverse: Goodyear Tire bought Celeron Oil and Gas, and Celeron was a smaller California player. I think they had assets across the country, but they were based in California just to more or less branch out of the tire business and try to get, you know, into oil and gas. It really did not make any sense. And I think it, it kind of died out within a couple of years and they, and they sold it off. But so it, it can go, it can go either way. And it's, I think, you know, and that's not necessarily looking at the financial side, but being a student of, of the industry and all the four C, you know, what's, what's around the corner and you know, what happens when, when A and B collide I think that's what's important for a lot of people right now too, is at least try to figure that out. Yeah, no, that's great advice, Tug, and certainly appreciate it. Before we close out, I just want to tell the audience, make them aware of all the upcoming OGGN events. Happy New Year, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for January 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time. So if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, the OCI East Houston Chapter Luncheon at the Monument Inn on the 5th, and the Houston Chapter Energy API Meeting at the Petroleum Club on the 14th. The only online event we have this month is the Prefab Connect from the 26th to the 29th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month So make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for January. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Tug, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed catching up with you, hearing about your thoughts on things. You're pretty active on LinkedIn. And so for everyone out there listening, I encourage you to follow or connect with Tug. Do you have any other platforms that you're active on or is LinkedIn pretty much the one? LinkedIn is it, Justin. Yeah, it's probably a little bit more old school. I look at a lot of social media and it makes me cringe. Me and you both, it's getting flooded with stuff that really doesn't add any value to me. So yeah, with that said, though, everyone follow and connect with Tug. He's just a gentleman and a scholar. And if folks are looking to find more information on CCS or carbon sequestration, what's a good resource for folks right now? Oh, man. You know what? Department of Energy has a lot of resources right now, as does NETL. And like you said, just Google it. It's, it's still so new. I wish I could I could point to you know, a certain industry or a certain company that has really dove into it hard, but it really is. It's, it's genuinely nascent and kind of the wild, wild west. And it's something that if you're, you're interested in it, it's so new, you could probably find your niche if you really wanted to. No kidding. Well, that's exciting stuff. For all the listeners out there, thanks for the support. Keep listening, subscribe, leave a review, and always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.